HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. And today the question at hand is, which came first, the cookie or the chocolate chip? Well, we're going to explore that question today, and I have just the person to answer it. You know, there are only a few truly iconic American food items, and two of the most well-known, of course, we have to not include Coca-Cola. That's the third well-known. That's another show, by the way. We've done that one. Uh, But the two really well-known iconic American food items are Spam and the Toll House chocolate chip cookie. I would venture to say that probably the, the first, and for many of us, the only homemade cookie you've ever eaten has been a Toll House chocolate chip cookie fresh out of the oven. Who can resist that? And it's interesting because both of these items, they have a very interesting history, and they both come from, were born around the same time in the same era. This year marks the 75th anniversary of America's favorite cookie, and Spam is well into its 77th year. Well, my guest today who can answer all those questions is no stranger to these American pop culture, iconic foods, if you will. She is the ultimate authority on American popular foods, Carolyn Wyman. And Carolyn has authored several books on these topics. She has just released The Great American Chocolate Chip Cookie Book, which we will talk about in length today. And her previous books are Spam, a biography, Jell-O, a biography. Ooh, didn't know Jell-O was that iconic thing, did you? (laughs) And Better Than Homemade, uh, as well as the great Philly cheese steak book. That was a mouthful. I couldn't get that out. Carolyn, what food are you going to explore next? (laughs) 
That's a good question. I'm <laughs> open for suggestions. Yeah, there's. Uh, I'm running out of icons, aren't I? I guess. Well, <laughs> welcome to the show. I have to tell you, um, reading the book has been a real pleasure because there are so many, aside from you know, the, writing the history, there are so many wonderful side stories to this chocolate chip cookie story. All right, so let's answer that question first before we hold people in suspense too long. Which came first, the cookie or the chip? The cookie. Ah. And, um, I mean, that's something I think is really interesting. You know, maybe you know this. I don't, but um, how many, you know, food products have been invented for use in a specific recipe? I think, I mean, I can't think of another one except for I know that Kraft Caramels, for a while, they came out with a cut-up version of the caramel to to use in in the popular recipes. Yeah, well, even the individual caramels were were used specifically for caramel apples, and they, you know, would write that recipe on the package. But but the app, but those taffy apples uh, existed long before the caramels. Right, exactly. You're right. You're right. I think it's a that's a tough call. Um, I, and, you know, that's another thing that makes it interesting is that, um, you know, this recipe was so popular that, a, you know, a major food company unit at the time decided, you know, hey, we got to make this easier for people instead of making them chop up, you know, candy bars, right. which is how it started. Well, let's so let's give our listeners the background of the history. I think a lot of people aren't aware of some of the myths that surround the history, you know, everyone has reads the story on the package of the Nestle Toll House chocolate chips, and that's who we're talking about, Nestle here, and that's an interesting story in itself, that it's Nestle and not somebody else. Um, so give us a little run-through of, of the history of the chocolate chip cookie. Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, they buy the the morsels, the Nestle morsels, and they see the Toll House logo there, but if you look at it closely, there's there's a building there, and so there was a toll house, and it was a restaurant. A lot of people outside of New England maybe don't know this or never went there. My parents actually, I mean, I grew up about 40 miles from the toll house, so uh, my parents certainly went there. My, you know, my relatives all went there because it was a very well-known high-end restaurant, and in the 30s, you know, there weren't that many restaurants, and the ones that succeeded tended to be very, you know, to do very well and be very big. And they they started out with just, you know, a, a single room, this Toll House restaurant in 1930, and it, it they kept adding on additions because it, it was so successful. And um, it was owned by Ruth and Ken Wakefield, and Ruth uh, was a very... Uh, I got the impression from everyone I talked to, including her her daughter, um, you know, she was a very good businesswoman, and she she was sort of the lead, I think, on that restaurant. And, she was uh, a tough cookie. That's what you wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and um, and she was constantly working on her business and making it better. It was just a uh, sort of classic New England foods, impeccable service. Um, you know, I talked to some former waitresses who worked for her and said, you know, we they didn't work for three months. They trained for three months before they would get the full two tables a night. I mean, this was, you know, to us wasn't like gourmet food, but it was very good food, classic, you know, lobster and 
and she was famous for her desserts and fancy desserts, you know, um, you know, Indian pudding and uh, rum cake. And, and she was, uh, and it seems to me she was making that mile high lemon meringue pie before anyone even coined the name mile high uh, lemon meringue pie. Yeah, apparently. I mean, that's uh, one one of the former busboys told me, you know, walking around, they would the waitresses would be walking around with these slices of pie, and it was like sailboats, you know, going through the room because they had a big <laughs> white white puff on the top. Um, and her Indian but, pudding, in fact, was was very. Fit. You know, something I learned from your book that I w- had not been aware of is that Duncan Hines, aside from the fact that he was a real man. Um, that he was a food critic before right. he went into the uh, packaging industry. Yeah, he was America's probably first most famous national food critic. And he traveled all around and, you know, uh, started out, he was a traveling salesman. That's another whole story, and there's actually been a book written about him. But um, a traveling salesman, and he used to write to his friends about his favorite places that he ate around the country and then eventually you know, became a food critic. But he said, yeah, her Indian pudding was like, he put it on his top, you know, list of foods in, Amer- I think, top ten list of dishes in American uh, restaurants in 1947, like, you know, one of the best dishes. Um, and Julia Child visited this restaurant. All the celebrity, any celebrity who traveled to Boston, uh we went to that restaurant and for locals, you know, because Whitman, where it was south of Boston, um, was sort of a shoe factory town. And so for local people, it seemed like it was a special occasion restaurant, and it was also a place where it was like you know uh, endless supplies of seconds. You know, if you wanted more, that was on the house. Wow. Um, but um, so she, uh, so she had these fabulous desserts, but she had ice cream, like any you know. At the time, you would have ice cream as part of the dessert menu. And she served little um, some cookies on the side of the dish of ice cream, um, which, again, is kind of, I, I remember that when I was a kid, that she went to a restaurant. That would be kind of a standard, sort of a giveaway. Right. Um, they would either be stuck in the top of the ice cream as a decoration, or they'd be on the side on the plate, right? With right. And um, originally, it was a butterscotch cookie that she served there, and... Again, she in January the the restaurant closed. Um, she actually paid all her employees um, to have that month off because they worked really hard the rest of the year. And she went on. She traveled and you know usually overseas, um, and you know tasted a lot of foods. Got got different, bought different things for her restaurant. You know because it was decorated very with colonial and kind of a very eclectic. Uh, Decor. I mean, she cared about everything in in the restaurant, um, and it sort of was a time to regroup and refresh and come up with new ideas. And after a trip to Egypt, uh, this is interesting. You think about this American iconic kind of very straightforward food was invented by a woman that had just gone to come back from Egypt, and she got this idea of putting chocolate in this cookie. Um, and she had gone to, you know, uh, to college for household arts. She had um, she had some kind of, you know, experiments. Apparently, a class where they experimented with using chocolate and 
in desserts. And um, there's a lot of myths about, you know, how the cookie was invented. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, partly sexism, probably. Hmm. And also with sort of uh, America's or everybody's love of the idea of, you know, you can just stumble on a great idea. You know, you can win the lotto. You don't have to do any work. And it's all going to come easy. She was, too, was, she was too methodical a person for that. Right? And yeah, I mean, she ran her restaurant, you know, like, a, sounded like a an army almost. Right. And um, Well, before yeah, you the, tell, but, but the, you know, it's interesting to, to note that the, some of the myths are really fun stories, too. Like one, you, well, you tell, you tell us a couple of, the, of the, the biggest myths. Well, I mean, if you go on the Internet, you know, you're going to see the, it's basically, oh, the chocolate chip cookie was invented and it was an accident, you know, and it's a great story of how um, she ran, the, the most popular version is she ran out of nuts for this cookie that she was serving at the restaurant and she had some chocolate on hand. She decided to to add it. Um, but there's all sorts of variations about, you know, well, she thought it was going to melt. She was really trying to make a, a chocolate-flavored cookie. And at that time, that was really how chocolate was used in dessert making. It was almost always melted. Right. It was no stranger um, to the baking process, certainly. Right. And... Um, there's, you know, other one story was, you know, she ran out of butter and she thought that the cocoa butter in the chocolate would substitute. Um, another one says that she uh, she got a she got a gift from Andrew Nestle um, and of a chocolate bar, and she decided to use it when she ran out. Of, I mean, and it's like a, there was no Andrew Nestle. I mean, it was this, and then they had sold the company years before. So I mean, it's just you know a lot of things that isn't that aren't true. And I mean, I can't. I mean, however it starts, you know how the old story about the you know you whisper something to someone and it gets to the end of the circle, and it's a whole different story. Right. I mean, um, well, I love the story I about in some I, ways. I, I don't know how it started, but you can't blame people for repeating that story because there really was very little available when I went into this, you know, talking to um, the former employees and and even her daughter. I mean, they didn't, most of them really didn't know. And it was only after finally, after doing archival-type research, like newspaper clippings, that I found several two newspaper clippings and a uh, a speech she gave in the 30s where she talked about inventing the chocolate chip cookie. And that was like, you can imagine that was a very happy day for this researcher. So indeed, we should paste a date on it for our listeners. And we're talking, what, 1938? 1938, that's right. 1938. And she, you know, Nestle always talks about the, anniversary of the chocolate chip because that you know is what they invented and that that's their 75th anniversary is this year um because you know basically what happened was she had made it initially from she used a chocolate bar nestle made a semi-sweet chocolate bar and when she got this the day she decided to try this new variation on her cookie um, she went to her wholesaler, and the wholesaler was out of her usual brand, which was actually Baker's brand, which um, is still made today. It's now owned by Kraft, but it was 
it's based was based in Massachusetts, right near her, so it makes sense. But again, this was from another interview where she told someone this, and uh, he was, they were out, so she said, "Well, I'll take the Nestle," and um, the Nestle worked, and she saw no reason to change. Um, it was popular, and uh, and so basically, there's kind of this little sleepy selling candy bar suddenly. Uh, Nestle executives started seeing all these the sales go up in that area, and because she people liked the cookie and she was giving away the recipe, she she wrote it up and you know mimeographed it and handed it out, and then it got into the Boston Globe, the local papers reprinted it. You know they had sort of a a recipe swap column, and it it showed up there very early on um, in in 1938. And then she, you know, Ruth did some local radio and and uh, basically it just sort of got popular. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean they, it, the cookie that went around the world, basically. And yeah, yeah. And Nestle being, you know, no no fool, they signed on a deal with her, right? Right, right. And they, they approached her and, um, uh, you know, that's, nobody likes to talk about uh, what the deal was, Um Nestle doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, her daughter doesn't want to talk about it. And I mean, I think there's uh, the well, one interview, uh, Ruth said she sold it for a dollar. That um, she sold the rights to the recipe um, for a dollar, um, and because you know she was a professional woman at the time, they kind of didn't you know uh, get down and dirty with negotiating money. But I think, um, you know, there's no need to cry for her because she had a really successful, very successful restaurant and did really well in terms of cross-marketing her restaurant, her um, cookbook. I think she probably, and, and there, there's rumored that she got chocolate for life. I don't know. that I wasn't really able to confirm that. But um, she certainly got a lot of publicity out of it. You know, when we talk about... Today we talk about cross, you know, marketing, cross marketing, and you know, I mean, she was a genius at that before that term had even been invented. Because you know, Nestle every time they ran an ad in the early days, they said from the famous Toll House restaurant in Whitman, Mass, and they said she even before in inventing the chocolate chip cookie um, had had a cookbook that was reprinted every year for years and um, was a bestseller. Right. And we're going to talk more about that cookbook and about the uh, the Toll House brand and things that came along after that when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. Every night you hear croon of Russian lullaby Just a plaintive little tune when baby starts to cry Rockabye, my baby Somewhere there may be A land that's free for you and me And a Russian lullaby Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. 
And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. This is Russian Lullaby by Plexophonic on heritageradionetwork.org. Baby starts to cry. Rock goodbye. Hi, we are back, and I am talking with Carolyn Wyman, who has recently uh, written the book called The Great American Chocolate Chip Cookie Book. Guess what we're talking about? You bet. Chocolate chip cookies and the Nestle Toll House chocolate chips. Um, you know, Carolyn, you, you wrote about this in your book, and I think it's um, interesting for us to mention on the air as well, is that there, um, there is a... a a tie with real American history, uh, the fact that this is an American icon, the chocolate chip cookie, there is a tie with um, the Amer- American history and that being Amelia Simmons's um, cookbook from 1795, which was the first cookbook purported to be published in America. Um, and there was a recipe for a cookie that some attributed to maybe one of the original types of wafers that she served, the drop dew cookie. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, again, when I was trying to, you know, discover did Ruth Wakefield really invent the chocolate chip cookie and how, um, you know, I, I read a lot about, uh, there was a connection being made by Nestle between, um, Ruth Wakefield's chocolate chip cookie and the drop dew cookie, which is, I guess, one of two cookie recipes in that American cookery cookbook. Um, and but I, but I didn't really understand it because if you look at that drop dew recipe, I mean it has it has no brown sugar, which is really distinguishing thing about the chocolate chip. It also has like mace and um, I'm trying to think something you know it just didn't make sense to me that mm-hmm. it, it it didn't sound like the chocolate chip at all. And um, I was able to you know Nestle let me look at some of their archives and this. There's a, there's a particular brochure that they put out in 1960 where a copywriter kind of fancifully, he's sort of talking about how, or she, I'm not sure, um, you know, the toll house supposedly had colonial origins. So he's sort of kind of fancifully linking the colonial toll house cookie or the, to- the colonial toll house restaurant with this iconic cookie and it, it just was basically um i think it basically the the language was something like you know therefore the drop is probably the earliest ancestor of the toll house cookie it says probably <laughs> right uh in the toll house cookie the spirit of colonial time shines through like the drop do it still stands for hospitality kindness for the good things in life so it was a very it was just a kind of a throw off very fanciful Line, but later, apparently, later people who read this didn't pick up on the kind of subtlety of that, and um, basically said, "Oh, it's the descendant of the Rob Dew." Again, another, (laughs) again, another myth, right? Yeah, (laughs) but well, interestingly enough, I mean, I guess even though yes, there are the differences in the no brown sugar um, and the use of mace, which at that in 1795 would have been common. But a sweet wafer, nonetheless, crisp wafer, as opposed to 
cookies, which were more like hard cakes prior to that. So, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, I can see where people would want to relate the two. But anyway, it is certainly an American icon today. And it, I mean, it just persisted so much in in America's uh, diets and desires that, of course, wartime, with, as with so many of, of uh, these products that became icons, the wars and World War II, in this case, um, certainly helped promote its popularity. Right, and we, you mentioned, you know, Coca-Cola before, and like Coca-Cola, you know, people sent, you know, homemade chocolate chip cookies to soldiers overseas. They They would share them with their buddies, and so... What started out as really more of an East Coast, New England, and then East Coast phenomena, really, that helped it to become known all over the country. Um, well, and, and, and well, and and not only then, it, and then it became well nationwide the most popular cookie. So much so that a lot of other people tried to get rich and did off of making their own brands. Right. 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 And you know, basically. Um, as I said, you know, for, for Ruth, and even today, I mean, you know, cookies are not on the dessert menu of too many restaurants. It's more of a home food, and that's what it was for her. I mean, she gave out the recipe. People made it at home, and people really didn't go to the Toll House, you know, for the cookies, at least not until the very end when they start, they did start selling, putting them on the menu be, before it um, she sold it. But... Um, other people, you know, times changed, and, you know, people in the 60s, 70s, it was more, people weren't baking as much, and, you know, as some of us remember, in the 80s, there were, you know, a number of very high-profile, successful, at least for a while, you know, chocolate chip cookie chains, Famous Amos, Mrs. Fields, and David's. David's right. was more an East Indeed, and, and those, and... and you know, it was all about this very simple kind of home, as you say, homemade kind of taste. Homemade, but you know, I was in reading the book. I was very interested um, to find out that the um, well, the first package mix came out as early as it did by Nabisco, the um, Chips Ahoy. Mm-hmm. That was earlier than I would have thought. When they came out, oh, when did they come out? In the fifties? Um, I believe it was I, I, like. Early sixties. Early sixties. Yeah. Right. yeah. And and then the cookie there was a cookie mix. And we all know that refrigerated cookie dough came out, you know, and, and that was kind of a revelation for a lot of people that couldn't even mix up the mix. They just grab the dough off the shelf and slice it and slice and bake, right? Right. Um but that there was a, a chocolate chip cookie mix. That I wasn't aware of. Um a dry mix. Yeah, and in fact, um Nestle did one pretty early on as well. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, part of the whole convenience craze, you know, post-war convenience food craze of that time, the 50s, the, the early 60s. And um, so in a way, you know, the, yeah, the bringing it to these little shops, the, the cookie stores, that was more of a gourmet, gourmetization, <laughs> I guess, um, of it. And what's interesting to me is that the, the, the cookie over history has just kind of gone back and forth. You know, it's like, you know, this kind of high, started out at this high-end restaurant, then became Chips Ahoy in the 60s, you know, kind of a, a common thing. Then these cookie stores that made these high-end expensive, for the time, you know, gourmet-type cookies. And then 
when that trend sort of, you know, burnt out, it was partly because one of one of these cookie chains, uh, Otis Spunkmeyer, which was based in California, it started out as a cookie chain, a competitor to Famous Amos and Mrs. Fields. Um, they kind of saw the beginning of the end of the of that fad of cookie shops, and they came up with this idea of selling the cookie dough with a little confection oven to other businesses and really made this new wave of kind of in some ways where we are now of um, chocolate chip fresh, you know, fresh baked, I don't know how how high end you want to say they are, but fresh baked chocolate chip cookies, ubiquitous, you know, being everywhere, like at McDonald's and Subway, they're the ones that supplied those big other chains yeah, with big tubs of dough and and, right. the, and the instructions so it's sort of industrialized homemade right right <laughs> and then you know and then like in the 2000s 2008 we have this kind of backlash again against oh well this is kind of an industrial cookie and you got the new york times you know putting that the perfect chocolate chip recipe out uh it was a huge, you know, phenom on the web. The New York Times chocolate chip cookie recipe, very fussy recipe with, you know, put special salt on it. To use these, you know, confectioner's chocolate pieces or cut up your own. Um, and Cooks Illustrated followed, and it's just, you know, it goes back and forth between what it's going to be. Is it right. going to be uh, something you buy in the store, kind of? Or is it going to be something you make right. at home? Basic homemade. Basic homemade in my family, and it's no nuts, <laughs> I tell you. Uh-huh. And, and everybody has to admit that they love or have, if they don't love it, they have eaten the dough before it's baked. I mean, the dough, it tastes so good. Who cannot eat that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of the latest thing, which is, you know, don't even need it, you know, like uh, just. Just uh, don't even bake it. Just just, just eat, eat it, it right the way it is. <laughs> yeah, and, there's, and that's bond and industry in itself. And you know, we were talking about the war and how the war um, uh, created such popularity with certain brands, Coca-Cola, the chocolate chip cookie. Another one that is, I'm sure, very near and dear to your heart, and that is Spam. Spam was created what? Uh, 1937? 1937, yes, just about the same time as right. the Charger Cookie. By the Hormel Company. And wh- why? Why did they create it? Um, it was it was basically a way to sell this kind of piece of meat that, that they weren't making any money on. They were basically throwing it out. It was pork shoulder. And um, it was not a bad piece of meat, but it was really difficult. They had to cut it, cut it off in a way that, you know, took time. And um, and it ended up in these little pieces, and uh, so they basically Jay Hormel got this idea to combine it with some ham and make it into this branded product, so that you know it would be uh, desired. And it also, interestingly, because Hormel had some labor problems later on in their history, but originally one of his goals was to have a product that. He would able to keep people working year round because at that time it was all they were selling pork that was always fresh, and so they would lay people off after the hog killing season was over. So this was having a processed product would you know have give them something to do in these kind of down times. Well, talk about a product that went round the world. It is now, I um I think it's 
more popular in Korea than any place else right now. There's ha- they have this newfound love of spam. Korea and Hawaii and um, where else? Um, Philippines. Think, Philippines, right. Uh, to what do you attribute this this popularity? Well, when I worked on my book, I talked to the guy in charge of international sales for spam, and he said there's three things that make spam popular um, in other parts of the world. And one is um, a pre- current or former U.S. military presence, because spam has always been, you know, it's, it doesn't spoil, so it's always been sent to the soldiers. Um, a love of pork, a kind of a culture that likes pork, and also extremes in temperature, interestingly enough, because, again, it's not perishable. Um, and so most of these places, you know, it seems weird, oh, it would be popular in Alaska and in Hawaii and in the Philippines, but all those things, all those, those three things apply to all those places. And, um, you know, that's sort of... Yeah, and if any one product, it's interesting, any one product is so incredibly popular, but also there's not one product that is more maligned than spam. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, but again, it's like it depends on where you're coming from, and I think, you know, we we were talking about before the show about this, you know, New York Times just ran a story about, again, about something that was in my book, too, you know, in South Korea, it's given as gifts. Uh, during like the new year um, formal packages of spam and it depends on where you're coming from I mean you know in Guam it's also really popular and prized and it's because you know they have typhoons all the time I mean you know we sit here in our you know nice uh, warm houses and can go to our gourmet restaurants uh, but if you're you know not rich and if you have a lot of weather issues spam is something or you have a just remember when your country was struggling and the Americans came and helped out, uh, you have much fonder feelings for spam than maybe we do. I guess so. I, and, <laughs> of course, everyone, I'm, anyone who has watched some of the old Monty Python skits, I mean, you have to laugh at that, where everything, it was, it was, everything on the menu was spam. It made with spam. Right, right. And, and that skit, you know, came out of, was written by a guy whose parents ate way too much spam during the Lend-Lease program during World War II. We were helping them out. We were helping to keep the English alive by sending them spam, but they got, you know, a little sick of it. And uh, so that's why he came up with that, that skit, like his channeling his parents' feelings. And hence we have the moniker spam for any email that we don't particularly want or that gets sent out of control to too many people, right? Right, right. And again, it's just like the early kids who were on the Internet, kind of nerdy kids, loved Monty Python. They remembered that skit, and that's how they came up with spam. Yeah, you know, it's and it's interesting because as with... Oh, hot dogs and and a, and a few other you know processed foods, the urban myth tales that go around. Oh, it's made with all the sweepings of the butcher's floor and, and things like that. Well, Hormel is a company that really couldn't afford to have their reputation uh, slip onto something like that. I mean, that's that no, was, I mean, no, absolutely. I mean, there's like so many worse things to eat. If I mean, if you're nervous about eating, you know, pigs tongue skins snouts or whatever don't come to philadelphia where i live because you know we got scrapple and that really does have that stuff in it but spam's only pork shoulder and ham you Mm -hmm. know and 
uh, salt, sugar, sodium nitrate as a preservative. That's it. It's, right. it's a pretty clean label. Right. <laughs> I think that gelatinous glaze kind of probably turns some people off, not knocking that texture, but there's, I mean, it's pure meat and it's good. All right. Uh, and in interesting, the name people asked about the name. Where did where did the name Spam come from for the product? It, well, it was a it was actually a, named at a party. Uh, Jay Hormel had a party at his house on Chris. I think it was New Year's Eve, and an actor named it. And it was it's supposed to be uh, from shoulder. Well, there's a couple of theories: shoulder of pork and ham. So you kind of mush that together. Um, Spiced ham is the, the most, uh, what most people say, but I don't believe that. I think shoulder of pork and ham, because of the weather, the spices. I mean, I suppose in the Midwest, in the 30s, maybe salt and sugar were spices. I don't oh. know. <laughs> but Well, any way you slice it, it's spam. <laughs> and, and I have to thank you so much for being such a, um, a digger of information about these American pop cultural icons because they they're things that we tend to put on the back of the shelf like a can of spam and forget about and they all have such interesting history so next time you're in the kitchen on a snowy day baking up a batch of chocolate chip cookies think about where that all started carolyn wyman thank you so much for sharing your stories and thank you and thank you for listening to a taste of the past i'm your host linda palaccio Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.